The text of scripture that we will consider today is 1 John chapter 1, verses 1 through chapter 2, verse 6. So please turn with me to that portion of scripture. And as you are turning there, just give you a little background. So we consider the backdrop against which the Apostle John has written this epistle. This is considered a general epistle as it had no introduction and was not addressed to any specific group of people. It is believed that he was writing to churches in Asia Minor while he himself was in Ephesus. John was a beloved spiritual father and leader in the early church, and many looked to him for spiritual direction. He was advanced in age compared to some of the other believers, and when compared to those who were his age, he was likely more advanced in knowledge of Christ by virtue of his apostolic office as well as his advanced spiritual knowledge. He was one who actually walked with Christ and was an eyewitness of the works that Christ performed, the gospel he preached, his baptism, his life, his transfiguration, his death on the cross, his burial, his resurrection, and also his ascension. He was known as the apostle of love, and one of the loving things that he did with this letter was to assure his spiritual children of their salvation in the Lord Jesus Christ. The timing of the writing of this letter is during the latter portion of the first century. As Paul had warned in Acts chapter 20, verses 29 through 30, false prophets rose from within the flock. Paul referred to them as savage wolves, not sparing the flock. He said that they would arise from them, those in the church, speaking perverse things to draw away the disciples after them. This was this was a reality whenever John was writing the epistle. It is believed that Gnosticism had crept in and was causing division amongst believers. Gnosticism, which we heard a few weeks ago from Elder Luke, advocated dualism. Matter was believed to be inherently evil, but the spirit was considered to be good. I won't go into full detail of the heresy since we had heard about it not long ago. But what we should be aware of as we go through the passages is that with Gnosticism's advocacy for matter being inherently evil, this was an affront to Christ because it denied his true humanity. In this view, the Son of God could not have come in human flesh because matter is evil. And that would mean that at a minimum, Christ was evil. And it also means that he could not have been preserved from the evil. Gnosticism was also concerned with deep things, elevated knowledge of the truth. Gnosticism was believed to contain a mystical knowledge, elevated knowledge of truth. It was uh, truth that exceeded what scripture says. And this is why we hold fast 
to the truth and call out and disassociate with those who claim to have a knowledge that goes beyond God and beyond the word of God. We call them out. We disassociate with those types of people that are always looking for the deeper things divorced from scripture. Two forms of heresy that came out of Gnosticism were docetism. Again, Christ did not come in physical form. And also the heretical teaching that the spirit of God, though it, though the spirit of God, he descended on Christ after his baptism, the spirit departed. This, this teaching says the spirit departed before his death on the cross. This is something that John refuted. In 1 John chapter 5, verse 6, it says this. It says, this is the one who came by water and blood, Jesus Christ, not with water only, but with the water and with the blood. It is the spirit who testifies because the spirit is the truth. There are some interpretive challenges with the book of First John. We won't talk about all of them, but one of them is with the terminology in the opening paragraph. What was from, or in the opening verse, what was from the beginning? Is this referencing the beginning of time or the New Testament times? The phrase word of life, is that a reference to the gospel or is it a proper name of Jesus Christ? Some Bibles have the term capitalized like mine. Others do not. So you can see that there is a difference in opinion in terms of the the uh, terminology. But again, that is something that for the interest of time, I'm not going to argue for or against a particular interpre- interpretation because personally, I believe that the terms reconcile themselves as the passages go along. Something to consider as we go uh, go through and read this portion of Scripture, this passage of, of Scripture. With Gnosticism gaining ground, the Apostle John was dead set on proving that the account of Christ was true, that he did come to the earth in bodily form, that he did not make just an appearance in spiritual form. And as mentioned earlier, he addressed in the last chapter the fact that the spirit remained and testifies to the truth. So let's read the passage. We'll pray and then we will continue in worship to our God through the preaching of his word. First John chapter one, verse one through chapter two, verse six. It says this, what was from the beginning, what we have heard, what we have seen with our eyes, what we have looked at and touched with our hands concerning the word of life. And the life was manifested and we have seen and testify and proclaim to you the eternal life, which was with the father and was manifested to us. What we have seen and heard, we proclaim to you also so that you too may have fellowship with us. And indeed, our fellowship is with the father and with his son, Jesus Christ. These things we write so that our joy may be made complete. This is the message we have heard from him and announced to you that God is light and in him there is no darkness at all. 
If we say that we have fellowship with him and yet walk in the darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. But if we walk in the light as he himself is in the light, we have fellowship with one another and the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. If we say that we have no sin, we are deceiving ourselves and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and righteous to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say that we have not sinned, we make him a liar and his word is not in us. My little children, I am writing these things to you so that you may not sin. And if anyone sins, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. And he himself is the propitiation for our sins, and not for ours only, but also for those of the world. By this we know that we have come to know him if we keep his commandments. The one who says, I have come to know him and does not keep his commandments is a liar, and the truth is not in him. But whoever keeps his word, in him the love of God has truly been perfected. By this we know that we are in him. The one who says he abides in him ought himself to walk in the same manner as he walked. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for your word, and I pray, God, that as I bring your word, Lord, that you would be with me. I pray, Lord, that you would fill me with the power of your Holy Spirit. Lord, if I do not depend on your Holy Spirit, everything that I have prepared is just words on paper. I pray that your message would be communicated to your flock and that that it would be well received and that they would be edified by your word. And it's in Christ's name I pray. Amen. All right. So walk in the light. That is the the uh, title for the sermon today. And while there are many things we can focus on the in the epistle of first John, our focus will be on walking in the light. We'll spend uh, more time on some portions of scripture, less time on others, but we will get through it. It is a, a large portion of scripture, but bear with me. We will get through it. Starting in verse one, what was from the beginning we see here? This language is similar to that of John chapter one, verse one. In the beginning was the word and the word was with God and the word was God. However, in this portion of scripture, immediately the apostle John moves into more intimate and personal language, which set the stage for the person of Jesus Christ. John says what we have heard, what we have seen with our eyes, what we have looked at and touched with our hands concerning the word of life. This language appealed to the human senses, to hearing, to sight, to touch. When he speaks of what they looked at, he referred not just to the physical sight of what they were seeing. Yes, they were in the presence of the Lord. They saw him, but what he is referring to, he he is referring to the mind. So they looked at what Christ was doing. They heard what he was saying, and they absorbed that in their minds. Uh, what was viewed and what was heard. Again, 
This appeals to the senses. Luke chapter 24, verse 39, it says this. And this is appealing to the sense of touch. Luke 24, 39. It says, see my hands and my feet, that it is I myself. Touch me and see, for a spirit does not have flesh and bones as you see that I have. And he even spoke to Thomas directly in John chapter 20, verse 27. Thomas, who was doubting, and he invited Thomas to come and to touch him. So this is appealing to the the senses. You know, Jesus Christ, this is saying Jesus Christ was here. You know, they they saw him, they touched him, they heard him. So against docetism, which said that Christ did not appear in human form, this eyewitness testimony destroys the argument of that demonic heresy that was promoted by the savage wolves and agents of Satan. John gave a firsthand account of what took place. And this is important because he is writing to a set of believers who have experienced what could be considered a church split. Now, this is not of any one church in specific, because remember, this is a general epistle. It doesn't say that he was writing to a specific church. We don't know to exactly whom he was writing. However, there was a split between those who were holding fast to the word of truth and others who were drawn away by the heretical doctrine of Gnosticism. This likely left those who followed the truth feeling dejected or disillusioned. There were probably a considerable, a considerable few who defected to the false teasing, to the false, false teaching. Sorry. So the sense of anguish and bewilderment could be expected from those who remained steadfast, especially if they were new to the faith. You can understand their need of reassurance. And in a pastoral way, that is what the apostle John did. He kindly and lovingly appealed to those who needed that reassurance. Now, throughout the book of 1 John, he makes many positive and negative inferences. If this, then that. He is very black and white with his language. If you are a Christian, you walk in the light. If you claim to be a Christian, yet live in constant impenitent sin, you are walking in darkness. No exceptions. It's straightforward, though not cold. Remember what John is refuting. So there was a need to be direct about what he was saying. Verse 2. It says, And the life was manifested, and we have seen and testify and proclaim to you the eternal life, which was with the Father and was manifested to us. So when something is manifested, it is made clear or evident. It is something that is obvious. So John is saying, what has been made so glaringly apparent to me or to us 
we are by way of this letter establishing that fact and making it known to you. We are announcing to you, proclaiming to you the eternal life, which was with the Father and was announced and made known to us. John chapter 1 verse 4, in him was life and the life was the light of men, talking about Jesus. First John chapter three, verse five, it says this, you know that he appeared in order to take away sins and in him there is no sin. Verse eight, the one who practices sin is of the devil for the devil has sinned from the beginning. The son of God appeared for this purpose to destroy the works of the devil. Chapter five, verse 20. And we know that the Son of God has come and has given us understanding so that we may know him who is true. And we are in him who is true in his Son, Jesus Christ. This is the true and eternal life. This is what was made clear and announced to the church. This was the duty of the apostle from the Lord to take this message out to the world. And that is what he did. In verse three, what we have seen and heard, we proclaim to you. John said, what we have seen and heard, we proclaim it to you so that you too may have fellowship with us. This is a mark of a true believer. There is fellowship with other believers. There is fellowship amongst believers with one another, a true bond, something that is not superficial. There is genuine love for one another. This fellowship is an extension of the communion that is had with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ, without which there would be no true fellowship amongst believers. Yes, you would have acquaintances, but there would not be that true bond of fellowship that comes from God the Father and his son, Jesus Christ. Notice here too in this verse that this is the second time that the apostle stated the phrase, we proclaim. Do you notice the zeal Yes, he was refuting heresy, but he was more so eager to spread the good news. John was excited to speak about Christ. And we can pick up on that in the book of Acts, chapter 4, verses 18 through 20. Turn there with me if you'd like. Keep your finger in 1 John so we can get back to it. Acts chapter 4, verses 18 through 20. Starting in verse 18, it says, And when they had summoned them, they commanded them not to speak or teach at all in the name of Jesus. But Peter and John answered and said to them, Whether it is right in the sight of God to give heed to you rather than to God, you be the judge. For we cannot speak, we cannot stop speaking about what we have seen and heard. Familiar language, right? You see the zeal there for John to proclaim the goodness of Jesus Christ, to talk about his person. Do you have that same type of zeal to proclaim the goodness of Christ to others? Tell others about Jesus Christ. Do not stop talking about him. Verse 4, he says, these things we write so that our joy may be made complete. So, All of these things produced a joy in John and to the other followers and apostles of Jesus Christ. 
It is a joy that they wanted to be shared with other believers, specifically to those whom John was writing to, though they were faced with the fact that others have defected from the faith and no doubt it caused them to be heavy hearted. The joy that John experienced could not be contained and it was made complete by sharing the news of Jesus Christ with others, the the risen savior that he knew about. He shared that with others and in turn that should have lifted up their downcast souls through the power of the word and the work of the spirit. So again, the sermon is entitled walk in the light. And though we will walk through what it means to walk in the light, I think that from the first four verses, we can pick up on some evidences of what walking in the light brings about in the life of a believer. Number one, walking in the light means that you have fellowship with other believers. Verse three, walking in the light means that you have fellowship with the father and with his son, Jesus Christ. John chapter 17, verse 21, it says that they may all be one, even as you, father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us so that the world may believe that you sent me that fellowship with the father and with the son and with other believers. Number three, walking in light brings about a zeal that cannot be contained to proclaim the Lord Jesus Christ. Walking in the light produces joy within the life of a believer. These are some things that will be evident in those who are walking in the light. Amen? Verse 5 says, This is the message we have heard from him and announced to you that God is light and in him there is no darkness at all. See, John has a message that he wants to deliver to believers to whom he is writing. And this is not just a hello, how are you type of message, but it is a great message, a much better message than just a simple hello, how are you doing? The message that he is delivering is one that comes straight from the Lord Jesus Christ himself. And the message is this. God is light and in him there is no darkness at all. See, none whatsoever. To say that God is light is to speak of the excellency of his divine nature. God is pure and perfect light. Some examples of what is encompassed in his perfect light are his knowledge, his wisdom, his righteousness, his joy, his purity, his glory, his holiness. And these are only but a few things. But within all that the light reveals about God, there is an absolute absolute fullness in all of them. Nothing lacks. These are the moral perfections of the divine nature. All of these perfections of God are full and complete, and they are shown to us through the Lord Jesus Christ. He represents the name and nature of the unsearchable God. How worthy is our Savior, Jesus Christ. James chapter 1, verse 17, it says, everything 
good, every, every good thing given and every perfect gift is from above coming down from the father of lights with whom there is no variation or shifting shadow, no change in God, in the father of lights. Verse five of first John tells us, it says, God is light. Now, if we are to walk in the light, we must first have a proper understanding of who God is. And the perfections of his nature mentioned above help us to understand who he is as much as our finite minds can comprehend. But as we read his word, we come to a deeper understanding of who he is and we long to commune and know more about him. As we read about his son, Jesus Christ, the exact representation of God, we learn more about who our God is, and we cannot learn enough. He dwells in inexhaustible light. Verse 6, if we say that we have fellowship with him and yet walk in the darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. Light and darkness typically contrast holiness and wickedness. Romans chapter 13, verse 12, it says the night is almost gone and the day is near. Therefore, let us lay aside the deeds of darkness and put on the armor of light. Ephesians chapter 5, verse 8, it says you were formerly darkness, but now you are the light in the Lord. Walk as children of the light. Do we take seriously those commands of scripture to walk in the light? Those who walk in darkness walk contrary to the required holy living demanded by scripture. Those who walk in light, they walk according to the commands of the holy word of God. Now, As we see in this verse six, there are those who pretend to walk in the light and they may partake in worship services. They may attend your feasts. They may take part in your fellowships, participate in the Lord's Supper, but they do not have communion with God. The affections of their hearts are set on things of the world and not the matters of holy living according to God's word. They live contrary to what is true, for they lie and do not practice the truth according to God's commands. That is a glimpse of what it looks like to walk in darkness. But in verse 7, it says, but if we walk in light as he himself is in the light, we have fellowship with one another and the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. See, God cannot help but to be in the light. Again, by his essence, he is light. So there is no other place for him to be. This is his essence. We are to imitate the one who is the light. If we walk in the light as he himself is in the light, we are to imitate the one who is the light. But how? Do we imitate what we cannot see? God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. 
with God being spirit, with him being omnipresent, he's everywhere. He fills this room right now. How do we imitate what we cannot see? How did John and the other apostles walk in the light? They imitated the one who was manifested to them, the one who they saw, heard, looked at, and touched with their own hands, the one who was fully God and fully man and walked upon this earth, Jesus Christ. And though we cannot see him now, we are not hopeless, for we have his word to read and the Holy Spirit to help us walk in the light. That is how we imitate the one who is in the light. He has given us his instruction. Let us not neglect it. There is no excuse. To walk in light is far from some mundane routine. It is not just a casual, casual stroll through the paths of religion. No, this is an intentional walk toward holiness, which pleases the Lord. Walking in light is worshiping God, being pleased to do his will, never reveling in the falling short of his glory in sin. It is fellowshipping with other believers, loving one another, looking out for the well-being of each other, outdoing one another in kindness. This is just a small list of examples. However, Let's sum it up to say that walking is uh, in the light is a continued progression toward holiness. To walk in light is to strive toward holiness. First Peter chapter one, verses 15 and 16, it says, but like the holy one who called you, be holy yourselves also in all your behavior, because it is written, you shall be holy for I am holy. So to walk in the light is a continued progression toward holiness. However, before any of this can happen, we must first be cleansed of sin. If we are not first cleansed of sin, then we are only making our way through works righteousness in pursuit of pleasing God. In fact, verse 8 tells us this, that if we say that we have no sin, we are deceiving ourselves and the truth is not in us. Step number one in walking in righteousness is to be cleansed from sin. How does this happen? Only through the blood of Jesus Christ that was shed on Calvary. The blood of Jesus Christ is efficacious in not, in, in cleansing the most sin stained sinner. The one who is hidden in the remotest coal mine of darkness. Whether they, when, whenever they repent of sin and believe in Christ, they are forgiven. The light is shined. The darkness must flee whenever they repent of their sin. Their soul becomes illuminated by the Spirit of Christ and they can sing out that dirty sinner. Oh, the blood of Jesus. Oh, the blood of Jesus. It washes white 
as snow. Do not take lightly the blood of Jesus that was shed for your sin. There is no walking in the light without the shed blood of Jesus Christ. The pathway to righteousness is stained red with the precious blood of the Savior. Until you are redeemed by him, you remain in the darkness of sin. Do you want to be cleansed by the blood of Jesus? Do you want the crimson stain of your sin to be washed? whiter than snow. Have you taken that step out of darkness into the light of forgiveness through Jesus Christ? Or are you in the death grips of sin, pretending to be in the light? I invite you to be cleansed by the blood of Christ. Know that there is wonder-working power in his blood, in the blood of the Lamb. The wonder, the miracle, is that he takes dead sinners who hated him, and he saves them. They were headed down the path to death and eternal destruction, and he sets them on the path of righteousness. To the impenitent sinner, there is a way which seems right, and they believe that they are on the right path while traveling the broad road to destruction. It is as if, and this is me talking, it is as if they see a light at the end of the path which shines so brightly And it is very attractive to them only to realize that once they reach the end of the path, that the light that they were seeing were the flames of hell. And when they turn in horror to run the other way before they can take one step, blocking their path is the one who is the true light. And he says to them in judgment, depart from me, you worker of iniquity. And he cast them into Eternal destruction. See, this is the person who lived it up in the world while they were on the earth. They walked into eternal destruction and realized that it was too late. Do not let that be you. Turn to the light today in repentance and faith in Jesus Christ to escape the darkness of the eternal wrath of God which will be poured out upon unbelievers who die in their sin. Don't be so prideful and arrogant as to as those who say that they have no sin as in verse uh in verse 8. These are the ones that deceive themselves and the truth is not in them. This was a fitting statement for the apostle to communicate because remember, those whom he was refuting believed that matter was bad and the spirit was good. So what was their Gnostic rationale? Everything that was done, which was sinful and wrong, was attributed to the body. Their spirit, however, was good. There was no sin in their spirit, so they were without sin. That was their rationale, because the body is evil, charge it to the body, not my good spirit. This goes against 
the teaching of Scripture, which says, all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Ezekiel chapter 18, verse 21, it says, the soul who sins shall die. That is what Scripture teaches. When you deceive yourself concerning sin, it is a horrible thing. It proves that the truth is not in you. When you continually deny your sin, you go further into darkness. Having our sin made known to us is a grace of God, one that we should eagerly welcome. Why so? Because with knowledge and awareness of our sin, we are then able to confess the sin. And the benefit of confessing the sin is that we will be forgiven of sin and cleansed from all unrighteousness. As the scripture says, this is a promise of God. Too often when people get tangled up in sin, they run and hide, thinking that they are concealing the matter from the one who sees all. You may be able to hide your sin from others. People may be fooled. God is not deceived. You, most of all, are deceived. Matthew Henry says this. He says, we must be aware of deceiving ourselves in denying or excusing our sins. The more we see them, the more we shall esteem and value the remedy. What is the remedy? Confession of sins continually and then forgiveness of sins and cleansing from all unrighteousness through Jesus Christ. As it has already been established that his blood cleanses from what? All sin. Henry then goes on to say, the Christian religion is a religion of sinners of such as have sinned and in whom sin in some measure still dwells. The Christian life is a life of continued repentance, humiliation for and mortification of sin, of continual faith in, thankfulness for and love to the Redeemer and hopeful, joyful expectation of a day of glorious redemption in which the believer shall be fully and finally acquitted and sin abolished forever. Amen to that. Believer, do you look forward to that? Is this your attitude towards sin and confession of your sin? Do not be deceived. What an invitation this is to sinners to come to God for forgiveness of sin and cleansing of all unrighteousness. He is faithful and righteous to do so if you come to him. But how are you to come to him? What is the requirement? Confess. Confess your sin. Do not hide it. And this is not just a casual, emotionless confession but one which understands that you have sinned against God. A confession that is eager to rid itself of the sin that offends Almighty God. You are one who is considered dead to sin, but alive to God. So you want that stench of sin far from you. You don't want it to be named among you. You don't want to be characterized by that sin. So what do you do? 
continually confess your sin to God and you are constantly forgiven and cleansed by the living water that Christ provides. Confess your sin to God. Do not hide from him. He sees it all. Verse 10, it says, if we say that we have not sinned, we make him a liar and his word is not in us. So not only are you deceived when you say that you have not sinned, but you dishonor the holy name of God. You show that God's word is not in you because if it were, you would understand just how wretched a sinner you are. If you say that you have not sinned, then you make yourself and your righteous the remedy for sin. The precious blood of Jesus is of no value to you. The sinless, spotless lamb of God is held in very low esteem in your eyes because you have elevated yourself above the mercy seat where the blood of Christ was spilled. In fact, instead of the blood being offered, you offer your own righteousness, which is nothing but filthy rags, filthy garments in the eyes of God. How much you are to be pitied because when you stand before the Lord, you will be justly awakened to your folly. John's arguments for what distinguished a true believer from one who pretended to be in the light should have helped the people that he wrote to see that if they were walking in the light, then they had no need to chase after those heretical teachings that were prevailing in that day and that they could find assurance in practicing the truth. No need to fret over those who left. Why? He tells us in chapter 2, verse 19, he says, they went out from us, but they were not really of us. For if they had been of us, they would have remained with us, but they went out so that it would be shown that they all are not of us. Let them go. Leave them to the Lord. Be assured of your forgiveness of sin. Considering what we've read in verses 5 through 10, here are some things that characterize one who walks in the light. Number one, you will have a proper understanding of God. He is the light and the source that you will draw from through his spirit. You will practice the truth. Number two, you will practice truth, meaning you will continually aim for the mark of perfect holiness. No days off, no excuses. You will have fellowship with other believers. You will recognize, number four, the the efficacious value of the cleansing blood of Jesus from all sin. Number five, You will confess your sin to the faithful and righteous God who will forgive your sin. Number six, you will not dishonor the Holy Lord by making him a liar when you say you do not sin. Number seven, you will not deceive yourself into believing that you have 
no sin or that it is excused. Amen. On to chapter two, verse one. My little children, I am writing these things to you so that you may not sin. And if anyone sins, we have an advocate with the father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. Again, John is a spiritual father and leader to many. And in a pastoral way, he appeals to them by calling them little children the beloved, the little children in Christ. He tells them that he is writing to them so that they may not sin. In this, he is not saying that they will not sin. But what he is saying bluntly is that sin is not permissible at all. In contrast to verse 9, which says that God will forgive sins if we confess and that he will cleanse us from all unrighteousness, the promise of verse 9 does not give anyone a license to sin. As the Apostle Paul said, are we to continue in sin so that grace will abound? May it never be. How shall we who died to sin still live in it? Romans chapter 6 verses 1 and 2. The Apostle John is saying that he is writing these things to these believers so that they do not sin. More directly, he is saying, do not sin. It carries the same idea of striving for holy perfection. However, he follows this up with a glorious truth, which says that if anyone sins, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous, the we, the believers, not everyone, only those who are Christ's sheep have that advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. What it does not say is that we have an advocate because of Christ. Now, this is true, but rather the way that the language reads is that Jesus Christ is our advocate. The book of Hebrews chapter 7 verse 25, it says this. It says, therefore, he is able also to save forever those who draw near to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. This is what our advocate, Jesus Christ, does for us. Why is this important? Simply because we cannot begin to think that we can stand before holy God and plead our case on the basis of our own merit. Jesus Christ is our advocate. Continually, at all times, we cannot stand before God. The only way that we are reconciled to God is through Jesus Christ alone, on the basis of the work that he did, and because of who he is, the Son of God. He can stand before his Holy Father and plead our case continually on the basis of the blood that he shed for his elect, we can be declared not guilty before the Father over and over and over (coughs) again. The accuser of the brethren is defeated, and he consistently loses in court, in the court of the Holy One. Jesus Christ is powerful enough to advocate on behalf of 
all of us collectively. And he is also loving enough to plead our case individually. There is no backlog in the court system of the holy. All at once, over and over, collectively and individually, we are declared not guilty in the holiest of holies before the infinite, eternal, and almighty God. That is what Christ, our advocate, does. We cannot do it on our own. Don't begin to think that you can. I pray that you are encouraged to drop all of the worthless sin that you may have carried in this place with you today and fall at the foot of the throne of God and cry out for mercy, which he will freely give to the one who has come to the end of themselves and admits, I cannot do this on my own. God, I need you. Save me now. I need an advocate. Do not Wait, don't delay. Sinner, cry out in repentance and faith in Christ. Plead with God for the mercy that only he can provide and he will provide. Saint, come to the well of grace that never bottoms out. Be restored to your God. Be freed by the power of the Holy Spirit from the sin that so easily entangles you and leave this place singing, it is well, it is well with my soul because the mercy of God you know has lifted the weight of sin off of your shoulders, that weight of sin that you have been carrying. Confess your sin to God. He is faithful and righteous to forgive you of sin and to cleanse you from all unrighteousness. This is his mercy. Chapter 2, verse 2, And he himself is the propitiation for our sins, and not for ours only, but also for those of the whole world. Jesus Christ, the righteous, is himself the propitiation for our sins. And though the meaning of the word propitiation is more rich than a surface level of an explanation, in the interest of time, let's suffice it to say that it means substitution. Okay? Again, it is more rich than that because it is not only the appeasement of the one who is offended by the offender, but it has more to do with the changing of the character or the nature of the offender who deserves justice by way of them overcoming an insurmountable obstacle to be brought in right relationship with the offended. We are the offenders. God is the one who is offended. The substitution, Jesus Christ, who changes our nature and makes us right with God. If anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has gone. The new has come. How do we stand before God? By what Christ has done. How far does this propitiation go? It stretches, and I quote, as wide as the sin. 
it stretches as wide as the sin. So that is what the apostle is saying whenever he speaks of the whole world. Now, lest you begin to think that I am advocating for the heresy of universalism, let me explain what this means. This just speaks to the efficacy of the propitiation for the whole world. For those who believe, this propitiation brings eternal life for those who believe. To those who do not believe, it brings death and eternal wrath. Because the propitiation for death was abundantly supplied and you, unbeliever, trampled the life giver under your feet. See, the problem is not with the efficacy of the propitiation, but it is with you and your inexcusable unbelief. Repent and believe in Christ today. How tragic it is if at this point, knowing the remedy that has been provided for sin, you carry on in it. You've heard about the Christ and the testimony that he is real. You are by the grace and mercy of God offered confession and cleansing of sin. You have heard that the blood of Christ cleanses from all sin and that he alone is the worthy advocate with the Father. And that Christ alone closed the impossible gap between man and God by being the propitiation for our sin. If... After all of this, you decide that Christ is not enough for you and you remain impenitent, refusing to acknowledge your sin, or if you acknowledge that all of this is true and yet still hide from God, not confessing your sin, not abiding in the vine, which is Christ, but choosing to cover yourself in the fig leaves of shame, then you are to be pitied. Turn to Christ. Verse 3. Now, as we begin to wrap this up, let's talk about how we know God. And by extension, if we are walking in the light. Verse 3 says this, that we have come to know him if we keep his commandments. Chapter 2, verse 5, it says, But whoever keeps his word in him, the love of God has truly been perfected. By this we know that we are in him. The one who says he abides in him ought himself to walk in the same manner as he walked. Chapter 4, verse 7. It says, Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God, and everyone who loves is born of God and knows God. Chapter 5, verse 3, For this is the love of God, that we keep his commandments, and his commandments are not burdensome. Again, verse 5, whoever keeps his word, his commands, the love of God has truly has been truly perfected. What does it mean that the love of God has been truly perfected? Chapter 4, verse 12, it says this, No one has seen God at any time. If we love one another, God abides in us and his love is perfected in us. Verses 15 through 21, whoever confesses that Jesus is the son of God, God abides in him and he in God. We have come to know and have believed the love which God has for us. God is love. And the one who abides in love abides in God and God abides in him. By this, 
Love is perfected with us so that we may have confidence in the day of judgment, because as he is, so also are we in this world. There is no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear because fear involves punishment. And the one who fears is not perfected in love. We love because he first loved us. If someone says, I love God and hates his brother, he is a liar. For the one who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. If you say that you abide in Christ, as verse 6 tells us, you ought to walk in the same manner that he walked. How did Jesus walk? John 15, 4 says, abide in me and I in you as the branch cannot bear fruit of itself unless it abides in the vine. So neither can you unless you abide in me. John 15, 10, if you commit, if you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love just as I have kept my father's commandments and abide in his love. First Peter, first Peter chapter two, verse 21, for you have been called to this for this purpose since Christ also suffered for you leaving you an example for you to follow in his steps we say that we abide in Christ we have to walk as he walked and beloved let us do just that walk in the footsteps of our savior Jesus Christ John chapter 8 Verse 12, it says, then Jesus again spoke to them saying, I am the light of the world. He who follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. Matthew chapter five, verse 14 says, you are the light of the world on a city set on a hill cannot be hidden. Are you displaying that light? Verse 15, nor does anyone light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on the lampstand, and it gives light to all who are in the house. Verse 16, let your light shine before men in such a way that they may see your good works and glorify your Father who is in heaven. Walk in the light of Jesus Christ. He has provided the way for us. He has given us instruction in his word. God is light in him. There is no darkness at all. Let us know. Find out who he is. And if you do not know Christ, I invite you now to turn to him where you sit in repentance and faith in Jesus Christ.